We live in a society that celebrates freedom and a selfie culture where self-interest and looking out for number one is all that matters. America has taken rugged individualism to the extreme, and in the process, the social fabric of the country has been rent. Hatred, fragmentation, and disconnection in our society is not just a political problem. It stems from some moral and spiritual crisis. Could the path to repair possibly be found through making deeper commitments? Author of The Second Mountain, David Brooks, joins us to discuss what can happen when we put commitment-making at the center of our lives. On this episode of Therefore What? Therefore What? is a weekly podcast that breaks down the news while breaking down barriers, challenges you in the status quo, explores timely topics and timeless principles, and leaves you confident to face what's next. I'm Boyd Matheson, opinion editor for the Deseret News, and this is Therefore What? David Brooks is one of the nation's leading writers and commentators. He is an op-ed columnist for the New York Times and appears regularly on PBS NewsHour and Meet the Press. He is the best-selling author of The Road to Character and joins us to discuss his latest work, The Second Mountain, The Quest for a Moral Life. David, thanks so much for joining us today. Pleasure to be with you. Well, as you look at the the genesis of of your Second Mountain project, uh, maybe start with that. What, uh, What was it that sparked... Uh, this effort uh, and this particular commentary? Yeah, well, this is a a book about uh, moral renewal, uh, and it's how societies and individuals turn themselves around. And this was both a personal story. I had a little ditch about 2013, and I just wanted to know how I could lead a better life. I was leading according to bad values, uh, and I was not alone. Uh, A lot of people in society were leading by bad values. We were probably too individualistic when we should be more communal, uh, we're too cognitive when we should be more relational and emotional. Uh, we steer our kids toward career success when we should be steering them toward moral joy. And so when you lead a life according to bad values, both as an individual and a society, you wind up in the ditch. You wind up isolated, alone. And we look around our country and see a country that's fragmented, where people are hostile to each other, depression rates rising, suicide rates rising, a lot of tribalism. And so I felt a personal need, but also given what I do, I felt a national need for us to find just a better set of values. So I went looking for it, and uh, I found people who live beautiful, joyful lives, and I just wanted to learn from them. Let's start with the uh, the concept uh, of, of the first mountain first, before we get to the uh, title of the book, The Second Mountain. Uh, what is it that uh, we see on that first mountain, uh, and uh, what, what does that journey look like for most people? For most people, you know, you get out of school and you do what society wants you to do. Um, they want you to have a good career, you want to have a family, have kids, maybe make some money. Uh, but you're sort of driven by a lot of the ego desires. There's a lot of time spent on reputation management. How am I doing? What do people think of me? Uh, there's a lot of time spent following the illusion that career success can make you happy. And we sort of know that's not true, but we live as if it is true. And then you spend a lot of time on the illusion, I can make myself happy, that all I have to do is lose a little more weight, have one more career victory, um, master some self-help technique, then somehow I can make myself happy as if happiness is an individual thing you do on your own. And so we we sort of follow the, the life that our society tells us to follow. And some of us get to the top and find it sort of unsatisfying. It, it didn't, the career success didn't lead to the happiness we were problem, promised. Or we fail, in which case we've lost our identity. Or something else happens, like a cancer scare or uh, you lose a child, something that drags you down to the valley and makes the first mountain ambition seem not that important. So so as you look at that, you, you describe um, that a lot of people who have 
been able to to rise to this second mountain that we'll come to in a moment. Um, but you you say it's it often is either you either get to the top of that first mountain of success and find out that it's it's really not all it's cracked up to be or it isn't really uh, you know that satisfying or you get one of those big curveballs in life or uh, or you get knocked sideways a little bit. Tell me tell me more about that. The difference between those that kind of get broken and those that get broken open as you describe it. Yeah, well, I think we all have valleys and some of them are caused by things like cancer or death of a loved one, some of them by a career failure. Some of them we just feel adrift. So, uh, I once told college students that you can actually, you know, your life is defined by your moment of greatest adversity and how you react to it. And I had a student come up to me and said, I haven't really had much suffering in my life. Uh, maybe I should find some. I was like, eh, don't worry, it'll find you. And I think those low moments do find us. And the question is, how do we, what do we do in those moments? Some people are broken by them. Um, they get smaller and more afraid and they get resentful of the world. Uh, there's a good phrase, pain that is not transformed gets transmitted. Mm. And so some people, something bad has happened in their life. And instead of dealing with that pain, they just lash out at others. They transmit it. And that's, you see a lot of tribalism when people who are, who are broken. But some people get broken open. There's a great theologian, Paul Tillich, from the 1950s, who said um, that what suffering does is it reminds you we're not the person we think we are. That it carves beneath what we thought was the floor of the basement of our soul. And it carves through that and reveals a cavity below. And it carves through that and reveals a cavity below. Mm. Meaning in the moments of suffering, we feel more deeply uh, and we see into ourselves more deeply. When you see down to the depths that each of us has in ourselves, you realize that only relational and spiritual food is going to fill those depths. And so suddenly you're vulnerable. Suddenly you're open uh, to having more emotions. You're open to the kind of love that actually does transform a life. Yeah. You mentioned that the one of the important, uh, I guess, transition points or hinge points to get to that second mountain is that there has to be this period of solitude and, and self-reflection. Describe that a little bit more for us. Yeah, I think, you know, in moments of suffering, we, of course, we throw ourselves on our friends, and we should. Um, when I went through a bad period, I thought I was still very guilty throwing myself myself on my friends. I thought I was being a burden to them. But now when other friends throw themselves on me, I'm delighted because it gives me a chance to, to build our friendship, really. Uh, so there is a lot of time spent just being with others in those moments. But I do think there has to be a moment of solitude. There has to be a moment when, as uh, the theologian Henry Nowen says, you stand in the pain mm. and figure out what it's trying to teach you. Uh, and that often involves going out into the wilderness, uh, going off somewhere in nature, uh, maybe in the desert where time is slow, where there's no one to applaud your performance, like no one cares about how great you are in nature. <laughs> And you sort of find yourself. Uh, and I think when you get down to yourself out there, what you discover is what one writer called your illimitable ability to care. There's just at each of us, I think, a tremendous ability to care for each other that is beyond, it's mystical. I, I had a friend who, um, when her baby was born, her first cho- daughter, she said, I found that I loved her more than evolution required. <laughs> and I've, I've always liked that phrase. I love that. Of course, we have our attachments, but some of them are so deep, it's beyond what we need. It's just a, it's sort of a magical ability to care for other people. Oh, I love that. I, I'm going to come back to that in just a second, but I want to uh, just drill down one more uh, level uh, in terms of the solitude and self-reflection. Do you find that because of the world that we live in, that we have this hyper-connectivity uh, where we're constantly responding to beeps and tweets and buzzes and uh, all the other demands, do you think it's becoming harder to to actually be willing to go into the solitude or to even find those spaces on a, on a daily basis? Yes. I mean, I, I find myself fraught every day because there's always more email to do. 
Uh, and I, that's, that's one of my, frankly, a, almost a moral and spiritual crisis that I feel like I've just bees buzzing around inside my head all the time because I can't get away. And actually, last year, my wife and I went out to the hill country of West Texas where there was no cell phone coverage. And we spent four days in a place called The Quiet House. And we lived the way we all used to live like 10 years ago <laughs> where we didn't have that stuff. And it was just much more peaceful. But I think the key thing that happen, has to happen in the wilderness is the ego has to be overthrown. You know, mostly we're thinking about ourselves, we're thinking about where we rank, and a lot of our email and social media conversation is, how do I buff up the ego? Uh, and when you're out in the wilderness, the ego has to be just overthrown. And the desires of the ego, which are to be better than other people and to have some status and have people recognize you, have to come to seem like small desires and not something worth devoting your life to. But they're, they're, And you realize they're just bigger and better desires, the desire to live in deep relationship with other people, the desire to serve some transcendent good. Oh, that's, uh, and, that's, and that really leads to that second mountain, that ability to, to care more deeply, to, to to be more connected. So describe the second mountain to us. Yeah, I think, you know, we get better desires as we get older. Uh, I used to really love um, Jell-O <laughs> when I was a kid. I don't really like Jell-O anymore. I like, a, uh, you know, I like a good croissant. You like a better dessert. <laughs> so our desires improve as we age. We, we get higher desires. And when people are at the bottom and they, they realize what they really want from life, which is relationship, communion, community, they realize they're, they're ready for a, a second larger life. And they think, oh, that first mountain, that career thing was not really my mountain. There's a second and much bigger mountain ahead of me, and that's going to be my mountain. And it's at this moment people rebel against the culture. They say, I'm not going to be a consumer. I'm going to be one consumed. I'm not going to live for individualism. I'm going to live for relation. They stage a little rebellion. And then what they do is they, they find themselves something they can give their lives away to. They, they just give themselves away. And I saw a guy who was a banker who um, just was found it unsatisfying. So he became, he helped people come out of prison and his eyes light up when he told me that. Mm-hmm. I have a friend, she, she's a farmer and she built a successful company, but her eyes light up when she talks about the health care she's now giving to her workers in the clinics and the preschools she's building for them. I met a woman um, in Ohio who had the worst valley you can imagine. She, her husband uh, took the lives of their kids and himself one weekend. Oh. And she came home to discover this. And she now um, has a free pharmacy. She teaches students. She has she helps mom who've been the victims of violence. And she she says, I did it. I do this now because I was I'm angry. I want to show that whatever he tried to do to me, he's not going to do it. I want to make a difference in the world. And it's all about gift uh, with her. And I've met so many people who live that and they turn out to be the most joyful people you meet in a given week. Uh, and so let's let's talk about kind of uh, some of the, the pieces of that or the, the core components that uh, that you describe in the book, the four commitments. Uh, and, and so interesting. I, I, I love uh, the way you have framed this uh, difference between happiness and joy. Uh, that uh, you know, the first mountain is kind of the happiness mountains, uh, but the second mountain you get rewarded with joy, uh, and that while happiness is good, joy is actually better. So, talk to me about those commitments uh, that that you cover in the book in terms of how that creates joy. Yeah, well, you know, I, I do think if you're shooting for individualism, individual happiness, you're probably not going to get it. But most of us make several of four big commitments. One of four, maybe all four of four. Uh, we commit to a spouse and family. We commit to a philosophy of faith to a vocation and to a community and the fulfillment of our lives depends on how well we commit to those things and people on their second mountains have as i say given themselves away sometimes to a cause sometimes to a family sometimes to a god uh, they've given themselves to those things they've made a promise to it without expecting a return uh, and they're all in and so in 
their marriage, they make it a maximal marriage. It's not just a, a contract marriage where the, each side is trying to help the other do better in life. It's a, a complete self-gifting to the other. Uh, there's a good uh, line that a, a pastor, Tim Keller, has. He says, when you're about two years into your marriage, you suddenly discover that the person you married, who you thought was perfect and wonderful in every way, is actually kind of selfish in a lot of ways. And at exactly the moment that you're making this discovery about her, she's making it about you. So you've got a choice. You can either have a truce marriage in which um, you decide, well, we'll just ignore each other's selfishness. It's too unpleasant to deal with. Or you can have a covenantal marriage. And in that kind of marriage, you realize that your partner's selfishness is not the core problem here, that your selfishness is the core problem here. It's the only selfishness you can really control. And if you dedicate yourself to getting rid of your selfishness and she dedicates herself to getting rid of hers, you'll have a great marriage. And so it means just a, a passionate throwing yourself at each other in an act of, of, of giving. Uh, and that that's a covenantal marriage. And people who are on the Second Mountain are living for that kind of connection. You also mentioned uh, the, the area of vocation. And you actually talk about it in terms of that there are actually organizations that are either covenant or commitment driven. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, I noticed this. I, I go to a lot of colleges and I, go, I visit a lot of companies. And in some, the culture is thin. Uh, people go there because they want to get a degree or they just want to earn a salary. And it, everyone's, it's sort of a contract. They made a contract. Mm-hmm. I'll do my work, you pay me a salary. But then there are some colleges and some organizations where it's thick. And when it's thick, there's a sh- sheer, sheer sense of the purpose of the organization. They're serving some larger goal. There's uh, a lot of time spent sometimes after meals and maybe on retreats where you see each other, you know, after the makeup's been taken off. And uh, there's a lot of, there's often music, there's a source of struggle, uh, there's safety. So every person feels they can say what they want and be respected and seen. There's a sense of joy that the, the, the place is just joyful. And when you see one of these organizations, you see something that doesn't just serve, you know, doesn't just pay people, it transforms their identity. So if, I'm sure we've all met people who were Marines and you always know a Marine. They, they've been transformed by right. a Marine Corps or a Morehouse man. And I was fortunate enough to go to a college called the University of Chicago. And when I went there, a professors gave us these books with a fervor because they believe the key to good life is in these books for those who study it and read it well. And I feel more beholden to my college now than I did when I graduated 25 or 30 years ago, uh, just because I realized I was in a thick organization that held up, here's a way to lead a noble life. Uh, and they really aroused aspirations in me that have never gone away. And my natural tendency to be shallow has been fought off a little because it's hard to be shallow after you've, you've tasted what they gave us. Yeah. Uh, so I want to jump to the, the next commitment, which is around philosophy or faith. And this is probably one that people generally associate with commitments or covenants is that uh, philosophy or faith. Uh, but you really extend that not just from the individual, but really out into the community as well. Yeah, well, you know, I, I do think, I mean, I, I think we're all we're all looking for ways to be deepened. And I would say, mm-hmm. in my experience, my, the world has gotten deeper. <laughs> as, as I've gotten older, my, there's a friend, Christian Wyman, says that my former attitudes were not wide enough to cover reality as I experienced it. That is, there are moments of transcendent moments. There are moments when you realize the world is enchanted. And I think after, when you're on your second mountain, when you've knocked the ego out of the way, you're more willing to surrender to those feelings. And in my experience, religious faith isn't always like God told me to have a cheeseburger today. It's not always <laughs> God's voice in my head uh, every single day. It's, Cheeseburgers are important, that though. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I don't want to downplay that. Um, but it's it's a visitation of certain moments, and then you try to stay faithful to those moments. And I do think having some some that spiritual awareness is a, is a profoundly both a humbling. Um, it makes you surrender and smaller, 
to be serving something like that. But it also gives you much higher goals, right? Because uh, uh, your standards have been elevated to the heart of God, which is a high standard. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And a lot of that leads to that uh, to that fourth commitment, which is around which is around community. Yeah, I've had the great fortune in the last um, year to be around what I call weavers. Um, there's a lot of social isolation in this country, but there are a lot of people who are building community and building relationship. And I created something at the Aspen Institute to try to learn from them, their example and build on their effect. And so we go around the country when we land in a town and we look for the weavers. We just go to the town and say, who's trusted here? And wherever you go, it could be a small town, big city. There's hundreds of people who get mentioned and we meet them. And some some of them have started a program to help um, young men have father figures in their lives. A guy in Ohio who founded a boxing gym and he wasn't really teaching boxing. He was teaching young men how to be men in a gentle way. A woman in Baltimore who surrounds each of the 450 lowest performing kids in the schools there with these vast networks of volunteers who are really serving as a, a second family for the kids, driving them to school, taking them lunch, being there through the ups and downs. And so these are people who have built community and it's been, uh, I think it's transformative to be around them because they believe in deep mutuality, that we're all broken, we're all equal, we're all walking in this together. And they're really great at relationship. You know, if I don't know if they could get into Harvard if it's measured by SAT scores, but if Harvard measured by how good are you at relationship, these people could all get into Harvard. Oh. They just are phenomenal at um, making you feel a sense of belonging with them. Uh, so, so let's uh, play that out in terms of you know where we are as a as a country. We we seem to be more tribal. Uh, we tend to fly off the handle again, often chasing ego or our our, our own self interest or the interests of our tribe. Uh, how do we how do we start that conversation uh, with the country uh, in terms of how do we start to change some of these uh, weaker values for better? Yeah, I, I think it is very parallel to the individual process we've just walk through. I think first we have to just give up the, a lot of the attitudes about ego and tribal that I want to be better than you. You're worse than me. You disagree with me. You're worse. You're a monster. And the way to do that is to taste what the weavers have to offer us. Mm. Um, you know, I was there, there, a woman, I mentioned this organization, which builds the volunteers around the kids. So that's in Baltimore. It's called Thread. And there was a woman who just served on the board, a financier who was a successful businesswoman. And when she was a kid, her dad beat her. And she she's Asian American. She said, I was glad I had thick black hair because the the, the teachers couldn't see the welts in my head from where I got punched. Ugh. And she had this miserable childhood and she attempted suicide and failed. And, and it was a rough childhood. She'd never told her husband about this. She'd never told her kids. But Thread, the board she sits on, has an ethos of what they call showing all the way up that you're going to be vulnerable. We're going to be vulnerable with each other. We're going to, as they say, call a thing a thing. And so that's honesty and that's vulnerability. That's relationship. That's that's attachment. And being on the thread board changed her. So she did, she began, she told the thread board about her childhood. Then she told her her husband and then she told her kids. Uh, and so she had been changed by the process of being around people who are really good at community. And I'm convinced we can all go through that kind of experience and, you know, learn to neighbor a little better with the people in her immediate vicinity. Yeah. And, and part of that requires uh, that courageous vulnerability, that showing all the way up, as, as you said, because I think that often leads us to to get comfortable with the uncomfortable conversations. Uh, and whether that's around, you know, addiction or homelessness or whatever issue uh, in the community, how do we how do we foster that? Again, that's that's not something you're going to get, be taught in Harvard Business School or, or any other school, most likely. How do we change that? It is it is a skill. Kindness is a skill. It's knowing how to listen. I have a friend who's a, just a really good listener. And when I go to him with a problem, he asks eight questions. And then I have a tempo in my head. Oh, he'll probably now give me advice. But then he asks another eight questions. So he just asks that extra round of questions. 
And that's that's a skill of listening, just probing even a little deeper. And then there's the skill of, of accepting. And then, frankly, the skill of talking across difference. I think, I think we should all have one relationship in our lives that is with people completely unlike ourselves who we see once a week or once a month. Um, I found that's tremendously opened me up. Um, one of the things in my own personal story, I was down in the dumps and I got invited to a home of a couple who had basically taken in a bunch of kids in D.C. who didn't have places to stay. And when I went there the first time, this was about six years ago, I introduced myself to one of the kids. He's like 17, 18. And he says, and I reach out my hand and he says, we really don't shake hands here. We, we just hug here. And I'm not the huggiest guy on the face of the earth, but I've been hugging at that dinner table for every Thursday for the last six years just because it's become a community for me. And what those kids do is they, they don't tolerate social distance. Um, they mm. want you to be there emotionally for them and they're, they're emotionally for you. And so they just teach you a different way of relating. And it's really contagious. That way you see a good person who's good at that, who's willing to be vulnerable and willing to just be open-hearted and, and it educates everybody around them. So as you've gone through this journey, uh, this second mountain kind of journey, uh, what's been the most surprising thing to you? What what did you most learn about yourself? What did you most learn about our society? Well, I, you know, some people say you don't change after a certain age. And I'm in my 50s. And the last six years have been a, a period of uh, external. I look the same. I got the same job. If people uh, looked at me from the outside, it would be the same. But internally, I'm very different. I did. Um, I had, was on. There's a radio show called On Being, which I've been on twice, yeah. five years apart. And um the second time I was on, the hostess, uh, Krista Tippett, pulled me aside after the show, and she said, I've never seen anybody change so much. And that's an adventure to think that you can change. If I change a lot over the last six years, maybe or a lot over the next six. Yeah. And just the awareness that life is more enchanted than we ever imagined when we were on the first mountain. You, you become aware of levels of attachment that you couldn't have imagined, uh, and levels of joy that I say in the book that, you know, we when we're competing for career success, it's like we're competing around a little crowded sun lamp. But if we just stepped outside, we could bathe in real sunshine. And somehow we don't step outside because we're, we're not aware how much joy there is on offer. That's fantastic. You know, I, I, uh, I, I once uh, did a really crazy early morning climb of a mountain uh, in Malaysia uh, just because I love to see that, you know, sun coming up when you're on top of a mountain is always a, gr- a great thing. I'm not a camper. Uh, anything below a Marriott's technically camping at my house. Uh, <laughs> but I, I, I made the effort, went up, you know, early in the morning on the, I had this extra time in Malaysia and, and and, uh, you know, went up and it was just amazing. I could see the whole island and then just, you know, countless shades of blue and green water and the sun coming up across the ocean. And it was ironic. I got back to my hotel room and a lot of my colleagues kind of chided me for, you know, getting up in the darkness to go climb the mountain. But when I got back to my room that night, um, they had put a little thing on my pillow with the the chocolate, which is how you also know you're not camping. If you have a chocolate on your pillow, you're not camping. Um, but it was this this great quote, you know, that says, uh, "Why climb?" and and then it says, "What is above knows what is below. What is below does not know what is above. One climbs, one sees. One may descend and see no longer, but one has seen." And there's an art to conducting oneself in the lower regions of life by the memory of of what you saw higher up. And I I kept having that go through my head as I was uh, going through your book and looking at these powerful principles uh, that, you know, we we do have these ups and downs and we do have these different visions or we get to the top of the mountain and realize that this was really the foothills um, and that there there is that second mountain. Uh, what, What have you learned in terms of when we do get knocked back down into the valley that we can take as kind of that memory of the view we saw higher up? Well, I, I just think that basically it's a gracious world. 
Uh, and I do think at the heart of things, there's just so much, um, so much like, spiritual depth to life. And there's a great writer, Annie Dillard, who a lot of her books are just describing nature and the, the weirdness of nature and the richness of nature. You know, tree sap traveling 150 miles an hour up a tree trunk, things we don't even think about. And there's just so much there. Uh, and then there's so much inside each of us. Uh, I had a, a weird moment about five years ago, I guess I was. I was in New York. I was in Penn Station. Uh, and uh, it's like one of the most soul-crushing places you could be. It's like <laughs> right. an ugly place. Right. You're surrounded by thousands of people who are all like ants and little lines. But suddenly I had just had an awareness that each of them had a soul and they all had some infinite depth and that there was some piece of them that has no weight, size, color, or shape, but it gives them infinite value and dignity. And it was an important moment for me because, you know, I write about people and I don't want to write about, spend my life as a journalist writing about sacks of genes. Right. I want to write about things that are dignified creatures. And I just became aware of the sensation that all these people are infinitely dignified. And all these people, all human beings have this yearning for righteousness, yearning to lead good, meaningful lives. And it gives them so many layers. Each person has so many layers. I think there's a C.S. Lewis line somewhere that if we never met a human being and suddenly you met one for the first time, you'd have the urge to worship this thing because all human beings are so deep and so complicated, each individual one. And so uh, you just become aware of the richness of life uh, and you try to see people in their fullness. Therefore, what? Well, we've we've come to that point in the program, uh, David, that is the, the therefore what moment. Uh, so people who've been listening to this podcast for the last 25 minutes, uh, what's the therefore what? What's the takeaway? What do you hope people think different? What do you hope they do different uh, as a result of your book and listening to this conversation today? Well, the first thing is, is let's stop thinking individualistically. Let's not stop seeing ourselves as individual choosers who have a solitary journey through life. Let's put relationship first, see ourselves emerging out of relationship devoting to relationship. Uh, life is a qualitative endeavor. It's about how thick are our relationships, not how many. And so devoting to picking out those four commitments, say writing them down on a piece of paper and say, how thick is my relationship to my vocation? How thick is my relationship to my family, to my philosophy or faith, to the, the neighbors right around me? And if everybody sat down with those four things and evaluated, what's the quality here? What's the thickness here? Uh, I think you'd see areas for growth, areas for satisfaction, but intentionally it would lead to, I think, a thicker life and also just a richer community and our nation would not be as disconnected as it is right now. Fantastic. Uh, David Brooks, the book is The Second Mountain, The Quest for a Moral Life. Thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, it's been a total pleasure. Thank you. Remember, after the story is told, after the principle is presented, after the discussion and debate have been had, the question for all of us is, therefore what? Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening today. And be sure to rate this episode and leave us a review. Follow us on DeseretNews.com slash TW and subscribe to our newsletter. This is Boyd Matheson, opinion editor for the Deseret News. Thanks for engaging with us on Therefore What?